Well, I appreciate the prayer, Josh, but I think we're done with the chaos now, if that's okay with you. <laughs> oh, it has been an adventurous morning, um, and uh, really shouldn't surprise us. Um, we're only about halfway through, but I think we can all agree 2020 has been a little odd, uh, a little bit rough. Um, I find it particularly amusing that the year that every camp and ministry was using 2020 vision as their theme for the year, nobody saw anything coming. Um, we were totally uh, taken off guard. Um, we thought we were in for a rough year, started off with wildfires in Australia, and now everyone's like, oh yeah, there were wildfires in Australia. I forgot about that. Um, because we were swiftly locked away in our homes and quarantined off, uh, fearful of spreading the COVID-19 virus. And uh, just as we started to think that maybe no one would ever leave their home again, um, the tragedy of George Floyd happened and people poured out into the streets in riots and protests. And uh, it's just been a very unpredictable year and for many, uh, a very difficult year. It's been a hard year. Obviously, um, the, the, the sickness, the death caused by the virus uh, is significant, but, but spreading beyond that, um, families have been stressed, trying to finish the year of school with kids at home and navigate new waters, and, and marriages have been strained under the, the weight and, and, the, and the stress of all of this. Um, jobs have been lost or severely cut back. I, I don't think any job has just kind of continued on as normal. And then there's everything going on in the States, the, the evils of racism being dragged out and exposed as they should, um, but alongside that are, are the, the, the riots and the looting and uh, all the political division and mudslinging. Uh, it just leaves the world feeling a little bit off kilter, doesn't it? And yet I think we ought not to get overly dramatic. Let's be honest, if it comes right down to it and we take a bit of a step back, we are living in one of the best countries in the world, in, I would say, indisputably the best era of the world this side of the Garden of Eden. I really, I think what 2020 has accomplished uh, is just a gentle reminder, just a, just a bit of a sneak peek behind the curtain um, of how fragile our peace really is, how delicate this security and comfort that we have truly is. And uh, we have it so good. And, and yet that could change so, so quickly. But even as I say that, uh, we have it pretty good. That's true for us as a country. That's true for us in general. But it's not necessarily true for each of us as individuals. All of us have points of pain in our lives, of, of suffering and, and brokenness and hardship, tragedy and loss. And so what I want us to do is, is just take advantage of where we find ourselves here in 2020 with this, this little bit of a jolt, this little bit of a wake-up call, that we would be growing in ways that prepare us for what may lie ahead. Knowing that the days ahead may be very different from what we're used to. And uh, the book of Habakkuk was written for God's people to understand how to live in evil times. I don't think we're in evil times yet, but that may well be around the corner. Um, so the, the book of Habakkuk teaches us how to live by faith in the darkness. Kids, you got that? I should, uh, 
I should remind you, I have chocolate. Um, so if you fill this, uh, fill out that fill-in, you come see me after service, and I have uh, some chocolate for you kids that are on the live stream. Um, your parents may have printed one off, or uh, maybe you just have a pen and paper there. You want to you jot these down. If you're real good, I bet you could bribe them into giving you a treat. You tell them Pastor John said they have to give you a treat, if you're really good. But let's, uh, let's get into Habakkuk. Um, this is where we're going to spend the next six weeks or so over the course of the summer. I know this is like your nice light summer reading, right? Um, but it's good. I'm excited for what the Lord has for us. Um, we know very little about Habakkuk. And uh, even the, the greatest scholars will tell you, um, we don't even know how to say his name. Some of you are going, Habakkuk? I thought it was Habakkuk. Um, which is it? Nobody knows. So um, I would just suggest anytime someone says it one way, you correct them and say it the other way, and we'll just keep it going. Um, we don't know how to say his name. But what we do know about him uh, is that he lived in evil days. Evil, wicked, ugly, hard days. And, and in this short book, um, just three chapters long, you, you can go home and read this um, before lunch. Um, but there is great insight and wisdom for us on, on how we ought to think, how we ought to live uh, in the face of evil. Today we're just going to scratch the surface. Um, we're just going to look at the first four verses of this book um, but let's, uh, let's pray together uh, as, we, as we start this, this journey together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its trustworthiness and its truth. God, thank you that it prepares us for evil days. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us. God, we don't know where this world is going, what lies in store for uh, our nation or for our own individual lives. But God, we know that you are faithful. We know that your word uh, is our trustworthy, faithful foundation. So Lord, build us up and strengthen us as we look at the, uh, the book of Habakkuk. God, teach us, um, cement our hearts in hope uh, in spite of what we see in the world around us today, um, that we might be uh, salt and light, that we might be beacons of your gospel uh, in, in, a, in a wicked and corrupt generation. So God, we give ourselves to you. Um, we ask that you would open our eyes and that you, would, uh, that you would transform our hearts, transform us more and more to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me to Habakkuk, uh, if you haven't already been madly flipping. And uh, fear not, I'll stall here a little longer than I usually do so that you can make your way there. Um, those of you with phones are like, I got a superpower today. Um, you know, you just flip there. Um, but let me, uh, let me help you out, maybe broader than just this morning. Let me just give you a quick overview of the, the, the Old Testament and how it's laid out. Um, maybe some of you don't know this, and I thought it might be helpful. So um, just very broadly speaking, the Old Testament is broken up into three different categories. You kids can see this on your fill-in sheets. Um, the first big section is just biblical history. Right? That's just kind of laying the foundation. Genesis, Exodus, um, Kings and Chronicles and Judges. It's, it's just telling the story of God at work from, from creation through Israel. Uh, and uh, that section ends with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They're, they're kind of the end of that historical period. The next big section is, is called the Books of Wisdom or of Poetry. 
And uh, that has Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, and those are kind of right in the middle of your Bible there. And from there forward, you have the prophets. And uh, the prophets, um, chronologically, all would have fallen, uh, almost all in the kind of the end of the years of Israel. Um, that's where they're speaking and writing. Um, but they're organized basically by size. And so first you have the major prophets. You've got the big ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Um, and then you have the minor prophets, which nobody ever reads, and they should. And nobody ever preaches about, and they should. And uh, Habakkuk is in there. It's, uh, it's near the end. Um, it is right near the end of the Old Testament. And so if you're flipping through, um, maybe open right to the middle and you'll find Isaiah or Psalms, or Proverbs. Um, keep heading to the right and uh, you'll find Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, you went too far. Go back. Um, so here we are, this little book of Habakkuk, this little gem hidden in here. Um, let me read uh, verses 1 to 4 for us, and then we will dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1, the oral oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. This is, this is Habakkuk. He just hits you right up front. God, what is going on with all of the evil in this world? What are you doing? Now verse 1 shows us... Um, it's an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, the word oracle there literally just means weight, a burden. This was, this was given to Habakkuk as a burden to be shared, as something to be written down and passed on for the people of God. And uh, it's also interesting, he tells us here that the whole book is said to be part of this oracle from the Lord. Uh, much of the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk asking questions about, or asking questions of God. Um, and, and prayers from Habakkuk. And the, the last chapter is very much like a psalm written by Habakkuk. But in the end, uh, Habakkuk himself realizes, maybe God told him directly, um, that all of this is given to him by the Holy Spirit for the people of God. And so it's not as if we kind of read Habakkuk's question and listen to that like you'd listen to your buddy, and then we, and then we wait to hear God's response, that's what matters. No, even Habakkuk's questions and his wrestling um, is all inspired by God. It's given to us um, for our benefit. And so the example of Habakkuk uh, is here for us, and every word of this book is given to us by God for our benefit. Every word. My kids aren't writing anything down. You guys paying attention? The first thing we learn from Habakkuk is pretty simple, and it's this, grieve the darkness. Grieve the darkness. Let's just stop and consider Habakkuk's day. Um, we, we need the backstory here before we can understand what Habakkuk is talking about. If you're familiar with Israel's history, um, it's so important here. Um, we started off, or we, we, we just finished off the book of Exodus. God rescued his people of Israel out from Egypt. He made them his covenant people. He led them into the wilderness, and uh, we know they spent 
40 years wandering in the wilderness until God would bring them into the promised land. And under Joshua, they would, they would move in and they would take um, the promised land. They stumbled and fumbled along through uh, a period being ruled by judges of mixture of, of sin and repentance and, and growth and, and being under attack until finally God gave them David as king. And David honored the Lord. He was the man after God's own heart. He ruled well as king and he handed off uh, the kingdom now kind of established and stabilized and following the Lord. He handed that off to Solomon. And uh, under Solomon, uh, it grew to its largest reach. It was magnificent. There was unmatched peace. Uh, people came from all over the world to come and see this amazing kingdom of Solomon. But Solomon, as you know, um, was drawn after many wives, and his wives turned his heart to other gods and into idolatry. And so shortly after Solomon died, um, we're talking about 930 BC, so 930 years before Christ, the kingdom of Israel split into two. Um, one of Solomon's servants uh, named Jeroboam uh, took the top half, um, usually called the northern kingdom. Oh, Josh ran back. Did I give you guys the map? It's all right if we don't have it. Um, so the, the top half uh, of, of what used to be this one kingdom of Israel, now this is the top half, the northern kingdom. Um, and just to confuse everyone, that top half is called Israel. And, uh, and it did not go well in the north. Um, Jeroboam was wicked. He's actually referred to numerous times throughout Scripture. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he was the worst. He was a, a treacherous, horrible, idolatrous king. Um, he actually made two golden calves. Sound familiar? Um, because he knew it would work. And he put a, a calf at the north side of the northern kingdom and at the southern side of the northern kingdom, saying, don't go into Jerusalem. Don't go into the southern half of the kingdom um, to the temple to worship. You can go to one of these calves, and you can do it there. Um, and he destroyed the kingdom of Israel. One king after another followed him, and everyone uh, as wicked as the last, uh, and until 721 B.C. So we're talking about, uh, about 200 years later, God would bring the Assyrians, a, a, a large dominant power that day, uh, to come in, and they destroyed Samaria, their capital, uh, and, and they... Their practice was basically just to round up um, all of the leading citizens, all the landowners and the important people, and they would just move them out and scatter them across their large domain uh, and, and bring in other people and repopulate. And so it just kind of broke the back of their patriotism, of their country. Um, and that's how we get the, the Samaritans. When, when Jesus comes and, and there's this race called the Samaritans, it's these half-breeds uh, who now live in the southern kingdom. Um, or sorry, the northern kingdom. Um, so that's the, the story of the, the northern kingdom till, um, till 721 B.C., and they're, they're destroyed, they're wiped out. Uh, the southern kingdom um, is called Judah. Uh, it's almost as big as the northern kingdom, um, but it was only two tribes, the tribes of Judah and the tribe of Simeon, uh, and it was ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And uh, they did a little bit better than the northern kingdom. Um, they, they tried to get rid of the idolatry. They had some good kings along the way that would bring them up. But in general, it continued to spiral downward. Now, imagine you were living in the kingdom of Judah, uh, as Habakkuk did, um, just about 100 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed. And, and so if you think about it, their, their memory of the Assyrians destroying the northern kingdom would be similar to our memory of World War II. 
So it's a ways back, but, but we know some people who were there. Um, and, and, and we remember it. And here's what their, their history looked like from that point. Um, Hezekiah was king when Israel fell, and, and he was a great king. Um, he, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asher. That's all references to doing away with, with pagan idol worship. Uh, and, and Hezekiah reigned for 29 marvelous years. Um, but Hezekiah's great failure was in parenting. And his son Manasseh um, would be one of the wickedest kings um, that Judah would see. Um, not only did he rebuild some of these altars and, and uh, high places for worship, but he actually even put pagan altars in the temple in Jerusalem, um, spitting in God's face. Second uh, Kings 21 tells us um, that, that he, he relied on fortune tellers and mediums. Um, he burnt his own son as an offering to a pagan god. And we thought North American politicians were corrupt. Um, this, is, this is amazing. Um, this is flagrant, openly mocking God. Um, the next king, his son Ammon, just continued along the same path. And, and you can just imagine the faithful citizens living in Judah, those who loved the Lord, who knew his word, just crying, broken. What is happening to our, our country? And these, these men, these are, the, these are the sons of David. This is the line that God promised he would send his rescuer through them. And look where they've taken us. Then along came Josiah. Uh, pretty fair guess. Um, Josiah was king when Habakkuk was a young man. Habakkuk would have grown up under the rule uh, of Josiah. Um, Josiah became king. Anyone know how old Josiah was when he became king? Eight. Anyone here eight years old? Okay. Elijah and, and Amy, you guys stand up on your chairs. We need to see some eight-year-olds. Here's your, here's your king and queen. Um terrifying <laughs> so eight years old he became king and 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 Josiah has a remarkable life when he's 18 do we have any 18 year olds I thought Eric would be here Josh you only look 18 when you shave um, so he's 18 years old and uh, he sends some servants out. They're renovating the temple. And, and, and this is how bad it had gotten. They're, they're like cleaning out a dusty old back room. And one of the servants comes upon a book. Huh, what's this doing here? Blows it off. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And they bring it to Josiah. And they start reading it in the presence of the king. And he's, he's convicted. He, he's, I'm sure, just in awe of what has just happened and what he's read. The, the law and God's covenant and his promises and what he plans to do. And, and, and so... Josiah turns to the Lord, all of his heart. He's following the Lord. Uh, he tore down the pagan altars, not just the ones in the temple, but, but all over the kingdom of Judah. And this wasn't just a, a huge political revolution. This was revival nationwide. They returned to the Lord. And uh, he gathered uh, the largest gathering for Passover that had happened since Moses. And you just imagine the hope. This is it. This is, this is hope of a brighter future. We're back on the right track. We have this, this great king. Again, we're following the Lord. Uh, and that went on uh, until 31 years later. Josiah, at the age of 39. We won't ask who's 39 here. Dorothy, 39? Yeah. Um, and there's unrest on the world scale. 
Assyria had been the world power for about 100 years and they're starting to they're starting to teeter, and Babylon is growing stronger, and so they're beginning to battle. Uh, and Pharaoh Necho from Egypt, um, he was an ally of the Assyrians, and so uh, you have Assyria up here, and I'm, I'm going to be the wrong way for you. Assyria up here, and Judah, or sorry, uh, Babylon over here, and Israel's here with Mediterranean, and, and Egypt is down over here. And so Pharaoh has to travel up through Israel um, to help out his friends, the Assyrians, and we have no idea what he was thinking, why he did it, but Josiah decided he would block um, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that they wouldn't go help the Assyrians. And in that battle, Josiah died. And Pharaoh went up and helped the Assyrians. They pushed back the Babylonians for the time being. And on his way back, um, now I own Israel. I, I, I defeated the king of Judah. And, and so um, he put Jehoiakim, um, Josiah's son, on the throne, but it was only as a puppet king. It, he was just uh, ruling in, uh, under the thumb of Pharaoh. And sadly, Jehoiakim was not like his father. The nation spiraled again into its old habits, old patterns of sin and idolatry and corruption and wickedness. And so that's the world Habakkuk is writing in. They've had a taste of, of the good days. They've had a taste of what it was to follow the Lord and have the Passover celebrated together. And, and now it's just right back in a moment it turned into the darkness and, and sin and idolatry abound. Um, this is the same uh, era that Jeremiah the prophet was writing and prophesying. Um, he talked about how the, the leaders of Israel were like shepherds um, that killed and scattered their own sheep. Um, there were false prophets who would, who would come into the courts of the king and say, I have a word from the Lord. Keep going. Everything will be fine. You just keep doing what you're doing. They eventually threw Jeremiah into a well and, and left him for dead. Um, king Jehoiakim uh, actually had a copy of, of the book of Jeremiah, the same um, prophecy that we have today. And, and, and here's what he did. Uh, he sat down in front of his fire and opened it up and he began to read and he would read a line and he would cut it off with his knife and throw it into the fire. That's what he thought of the word of God. That was the world that, that Habakkuk was in. A world that was twisted and perverted, that was bad and getting worse. And Habakkuk grieved deeply. He's so troubled by the darkness. He saw it. He, he didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't just try to make the best of it. It broke his heart as it should. It was a burden on him. Um, look at verse 3. He saw iniquity and wrong, destruction and violence, strife and contention. And then verse 4 is, is the result of that. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The courts aren't doing what they should. The people who should be protecting the weak and the downtrodden, who, who should be bringing justice, are unjust. And they're taking bribes and they're overlooking evil. And, uh, and justice never goes forth. And so you see this sense of frustration and pain in Habakkuk. The wicked surround the righteous and justice is perverted. What, what a... What a horrible phrase. And Habakkuk grieves it. Church, some of this doesn't seem too far off. Some of this sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? We've been so blessed in the Western world. Um, I think it's foolishness to say that any country has been a Christian country. Um, but our Western countries have been generally built on broadly biblical principles. And go figure, that's played out well for us. 
That's been a really good thing. And yet, little by little, we're leaving that behind. We are, we are cutting line by line out of God's word and throwing it in the fire. We're done with that now. We see justice being twisted. We see what is evil being called good, what is good being called evil. Um, corruption in politics, corruption in business, corruption in the courts. We see wickedness being celebrated. We see um, sin uh, of, of sacrifice of babies to the God of comfort and convenience. Divorce is accepted, even expected, as just a regular part of life. We take it as a badge of honor. It's a, it's a praised thing that we get to, to decide and change our own gender or our sexual orientation. It's chaos. And, and church, this is just the beginning. This is just the very very tip of the iceberg. We talked a couple weeks ago uh, about the conversion therapy pen that that passed in Calgary. Um, It would put me in jail for the sentence that I just said. That's law now in Calgary, and I think soon we'll be in Canada. More will follow. Uh, We in the West have lived in a time of freedom and peace and unprecedented throughout history and throughout the world. But unless the Lord intervenes, it's very likely that will be coming to an end. Tempting as it might be um, to say, well, this is it. This is the last days. This this is the tribulation. I can see it coming. Um, And maybe that's the case. But I think those who get really caught up in that and and are just kind of wringing their hands and worried about that, those who are are, are focused on that, I I think just need to, to read Christian history a little more broadly. You see, at this point, we are just beginning to turn slightly toward what has been the regular experience of Christians throughout history and throughout the world. We're just at the tip of this. This is not uh, some strange thing happening. In fact, that's exactly what 1 Peter 4.12 says. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. We ought to recognize it's the, it's the level of freedom and comfort um, that we have that is exceedingly rare. This right here is a strange thing for Christianity throughout history. Uh, I was chatting with Brandon just this last week, and uh, he'd been reading the book Tortured for Christ, and uh, I actually went and found the book off my shelf. He was sharing with me a passage that he was reading, um, and I want to read it for you and, uh, and then share a bit of our conversation with his permission. Um, this is a, a tale that comes out of communist Romania uh, in, in 1948. So, scope of history, this is recent. Um, a pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself at all times. If he rested for a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren. They wanted to know, Pastor, where's your flock? Where are the other Christians so that we can do the same to them? But he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought in his 14-year-old son. 
And they began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying they would continue to beat him until the pastor said that they, what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bore it as long as he could, and then he cried out to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I cannot bear your beating anymore. And the son answered, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communists, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death. His blood spattered on the walls of the cell. He died praising God. Our dear brother Florescu was never the same after this. And then Brandon says to me, here I sit reading this, sitting on my couch in my pajamas in the sunshine with a hot coffee in hand. That's a good analogy of where we stand in Christian history, what our world looks like in contrast to um, what many have experienced for Christ. But that experience could change rapidly. And we're right to grieve that, to mourn even have righteous anger as we watch our society and our world move in that direction toward greater evil and greater injustice. As they embrace ideals and lifestyles that are bound to bring great suffering, not just for the Christians, but for all those who embrace them. And as we as the church begin to feel a little more isolated, a little more ostracized, we need to see it. We need to identify it for what it is. We need to be saturated enough in God's word that we're not pulled along in that direction. Most of Israel went along with Jehoiakim. We'll go back to these pagan gods then. We need to see it for what it is and not be pulled into it. But also that it doesn't shake us. It doesn't surprise us when we're told, you're on the wrong side of history. Your, your small-minded, narrow, bigoted worldview, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not welcome here. You're the only ones left who think this way. Or even that we will be tortured if we will not be silent. We should be ready for that. We should understand that is a very real possibility. We ought to mourn and grieve that trajectory in our society. It ought to stir us as we see it. We ought not sit by idle. But the next thing we need to see about Habakkuk um, is his example. It's where he goes with his grief. He, He doesn't just grieve the darkness but he engages the Lord with it. That's, that's point number two. Engage the Lord. Grieve the darkness. Engage the Lord. Now, it's, it's one thing to be frustrated. It's one thing to be grieved and even angered. But where do you go with that? What does that grief produce in you? Where does it lead you? I found it very interesting through this whole COVID pandemic season and through the, the protests and the, and the riots to see how people deal with their frustration. Where they turn when, when life doesn't go the way they want it to, when, when things are not the way they think it should be, um, some people will take it on their own shoulders, right? And, and I think we see this through uh, political activism. 
This, this loud voice crying out. This is not the way things should be calling for change. Or sometimes through um, a, a skepticism and, and leaning into these conspiracy theories that, that I would warn us as Christians of the danger of slandering those that God has called us to honor. I think we feel like if we can understand it, if I can put it into this larger context, then I have control. Then I have some semblance of, of my own control over it. And it so easily begins to overwhelm us and consume us and, and change our, our thinking and our worldview. And, and look, I get it. Um, we have good reason for skepticism. We have good reason to ask, where is this all going? And, and to assume it's not going in a good direction. And we absolutely should be taking part in our political system and pressuring uh, our, uh, our leaders and our politicians and engaging in the democracy that we are so blessed to have. It would be foolish not to. But as believers, that's not where our hope lies. Our hope is not in political activism. Our hope is not in social justice. Our hope is in the Lord. That's the only hope that we have. And so let me ask you, um, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it more than you've posted about it, more than you've talked about it? Do you take it to the Lord? Or do we just take it upon ourselves? I can explain this. I can carry this. I can change this. I can control this. Another thing we're prone to do, um, either with problems we see in the world on a larger scale or or just pain and and suffering in our own little microcosm, our own lives, um, is rather than take it on ourselves, we just kind of brush it off. Um, we, we partition it out. And, and it's, we separate it from our faith, from our trust in the Lord. Um, often this shows itself, um, it, it looks like faith on the surface, but that's all it is, is on the surface. It's light, it's untested. And it, it looks like faith, refusing to question God, refusing to, to doubt Him or wrestle with Him, but it's very easily a cover-up for a lack of faith. It's like the man who, who builds a deck, and, and, and then he says, oh, it's, it's sturdy, it's sound, and he just kind of tiptoes out on it and scurries back to the house. It's good. It's solid. Is it? Why are you afraid to test it? Why won't you stand on it, jump on it? If it was solid, you, you could actually trust it. And, and, and if you're not willing to really test it, then what value is it anyways? That, that kind of religion that just sits on the surface of life, that just remains untested, uh, either because it's not real to me, it's not actually part of my true life, or to be honest, I'm scared to question it because I'm worried it might collapse. It might fall apart. I, want, I don't want to risk losing it. Well, what value is that faith anyways? Look at Habakkuk's example. Um, he asks God the hard questions. Ask God the hard questions. He goes to prayer. And it's tough prayer. Lord, how long shall I cry out to you for help and and you will not hear? Cry violence and you won't save. Where are you, God? Why are you doing this? What's going on? This doesn't make sense. He genuinely wrestles, grapples with the Lord. He's pressing hard on God. He's not not satisfied to just tiptoe out on his faith and leave it at that. He wants to jump on it. He wants to prove it. He has to wrestle this out. Church, this is your invitation from God to come to Him. You're doubting. You have questions. 
There are things about this life that that you don't understand, things that are painful and hard, that don't seem fair, that don't seem right, and you want to know why? God says, okay, come to me. Bring it to me. We hate getting questioned, don't we? Especially when we have a leadership position and someone asks, why are you doing it that way? Oh, how dare you? Why? Why do I hate that? Because I'm scared that I'm wrong. Because I'm scared that you're going to test me and, and I'm not going to stand up. That maybe my motives were wrong. Maybe my wisdom was wrong. God, God's not like that. God's not scared. He is good. He is wise. He is kind. And so he invites us to himself because he has nothing to hide. He, he's not like that, that insecure dictator who, who's off with the head with anyone who questions him. Because he's not afraid of what you'll find. When you question him, your faith won't collapse. He, he can handle it. Maybe you need to do business with the Lord. Maybe you need to get on your knees this afternoon and ask God, okay, we both know I don't understand this. We both know I'm not happy about this, God. Let's talk about it. You need to wrestle with him. Pour it out to him. Press on him. Ask him your hard questions. Habakkuk is also an example for us and God's invitation to us to come to him with these hard questions. It's it's an example and an invitation. But I want you to notice not just that Habakkuk wrestles with God, but also how he wrestles. What does that look like for him? Um, Point two is that we ought to engage the Lord, but that has to come along with point three, and that is we endure by faith. We endure it by faith. You and I both know there are very different ways to engage the Lord. Very different ways to question. And and though Habakkuk presses hard on the Lord and asks the tough questions, I want us to notice a few things about the way he does it. And and the first is simply that that Habakkuk talks to the Lord, not just about the Lord. Right? Do you see that? That's a radical difference between talking about God saying, how could a good God, how could God do that? And talking to the Lord. Lord, how how could you do this? God, how how could we find ourselves here? How did you let this happen? The skeptics love to talk about God, not looking for answers, but in their foolishness, trying to show that they're smarter than God, trying to muddy God's reputation and exalt themselves. But faith takes it to God personally. Personally actually wrestling, actually looking for answers, trying to find the truth. And, and that right there demands a certain amount of humility that honors God and that God will honor. It isn't just talking about Him, wrestling with it philosophically, but actually taking it to Him. And, and that admits that maybe God has something to teach me. Maybe it's me that's wrong. So he takes it to God. Secondly, notice verse 2, as he does consistently throughout this book, he addresses God as Lord. And you'll notice that's Lord in all caps. And so if you were with us through the book of Exodus, you get the significance of that right there. Um, Whenever you see Lord, all caps in your Bible, um, the Hebrew word behind that is actually Yahweh. Just for fun, I stuck that in the, in the kids' uh, fill-in. If you want to see Yahweh in the Hebrew, oh, it got brighter. There it is. Um, it's read from right to left, so it's 
Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yahweh. Um, and, and, and that's God's covenant name. This is so, so significant. This is the name that he gave to Moses. When, when Moses uh, at the burning bush said, God, who shall I say has sent me? And he says, tell him, I am has sent you, Yahweh. I am that I am. And so this is part of the promise that, that, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And, and so as Habakkuk approaches God with his hard questions, uh, he doesn't call him Elohim, the kind of generic term for God. He calls him Yahweh, my God, our God, the God of Israel, the God who brought us out of Egypt, the God who has been faithful from the beginning to work out his plans, that God. He's reminding both himself and the Lord of the promise between them. And so he's wrestling with God, but he wrestles in the context of faith. That's where we struggle. That's where we wrestle. He's saying, Lord, I trust you. You're the God who has been so good and so faithful, but I don't understand. You take your problems and your questions to the Lord, lean hard on him, but do it in faith. And let me, let me help you with what that looks like. Um, Habakkuk sees the difference between what he feels and what he knows. He feels abandoned. He feels confused. He feels frustrated and hurt and angry, but he balances the feelings of his heart with what he knows to be true. He knows this is the Lord. He knows the character of God. He knows he's the God who, who has promised to one day send a rescuer who would bring an end to all of the pain and suffering of sin. That's why in verse 2 you see, he says, will you not save? Why does he say that? Because he knows God will save. That God has promised to save. He's wrestling, saying, when God? And why does he bring up iniquity and wrong and destruction and, and violence and strife and contention? Because he knows that, that the Lord cannot and will not tolerate those things forever. They will one day be brought to an end. Every wrong will be made right. Every evil will be undone. Every injustice will be brought to justice. And so he wrestles with the Lord knowing who the Lord is. Wrestling with what he feels but holding on to what he knows. And of course, in using that covenant name for God, calling God to save, calling him to bring an end to the evil and injustice in the world, he's joining in. Like, like one more little tributary, little creek flowing into the great river of the Old Testament that is all, verse by verse, book by book, pointing us forward to Christ. This whole book points us forward to Christ. It, it feeds this longing in our soul that, that there has to be a rescuer. There has to be a, a Savior It's pointing us forward to Jesus, who also, by the way, wrestled with God really questioned and struggled. The Garden of Gethsemane. The night before his crucifixion, knowing full well what was in store for him, knowing all of the iniquity and wrong and destruction and violence and injustice that was about to land squarely on him, he cried out to God saying, my soul is troubled even unto death. Is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. Father, is there any other way? But he too wrestled in the context of faith. 
In fact, he wrestled within the context of perfect faith. In the end, saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. He was God himself. He knew, fully trusted, completely the plan of the Father. He was there in eternity past when it had been laid out. But he was also fully human and he knew the weakness. He identifies with those feelings of doubt and fear and wrestling. And in the greatest irony the world has ever known, the only person who ever lived, who truly deserved the full favor and blessing of God, who truly deserved to never be abandoned and forsaken by God, was abandoned by God, was forsaken, and actually cried out accurately from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Habakkuk feared that God had abandoned him. He cried out in fear that maybe God would not answer. He wanted to say, God, why have you forsaken me? But he was not abandoned. God was still at work, and, and we'll continue through this book, and we'll see God answers him, and God will continue to work out his plan of salvation through the rest of the book and through the rest of history. He was still bringing about his good plan. But when Jesus cried out, when Jesus prayed, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me, the Father was conspicuously silent. God could answer Habakkuk because God would not answer Jesus. Habakkuk faced his doubts and his questions, trusting and hoping that one day, God would rescue. One day he would prove himself true. He would defeat sin and injustice and evil once for all. We face our doubts and our questions and our fears from a different perspective, with a different confidence, because the Savior has come. With certainty that, that even though we deserve to be abandoned and, and may feel like we have been abandoned because of our sin that we will never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can cry out, I will never be forsaken. And so we grieve the darkness and we wrestle with the Lord. But even in the deepest, darkest, evil days, we wrestle in faith knowing with confidence the goodness of our God, absolutely undeniably displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and though in that moment he was temporarily forsaken by the Father, abandoned by God, and he bore the weight of our sin, three days later, he rose again. Uh, he came back from the grave in power and glory, victory over sin and death, and he's coming back. He's coming back to usher in a new kingdom, a new era, without iniquity, without wrong, without destruction or violence. A kingdom where he reigns supreme and justice always goes forth. That's the day that Habakkuk is longing for, that we continue to long for. So let's set our hearts on that day. Would you pray with me? Father,
Help us. God, we see evil days on the horizon. We've had some wake-up calls reminding us of the frailty of this comfort and freedom that we enjoy. Father, forgive us of our arrogance that we have assumed um, that you owe us this or that this is normal. Lord, we ask that you would be preparing us, working in our hearts, that our faith um, would not be surface, would not be untested, but that we would come to you and wrestle with you and find you faithful. Lord, that we would not rely on ourselves, that we would turn to you. God, ultimately, that our hope would sit on Christ, that we would look to the cross, that he willingly took on that abandonment on our behalf, crying out, why have you forsaken me? So that we might have confidence that you will never forsake us. We praise you. Give us hope. Give us strength in this weary world as we look forward to your glorious return. We pray in Jesus' name.